The world is always changing, and it's hard to keep up. That's why today our goal is to keep you apprised of some of the things that might surprise and maybe delight you about the world today. We'll tell you about the future of cars as glimpsed at the New York International Auto Show, but also in a factory in Fremont, California. Then we'll tell you if you can make a good movie in an entirely new way, shot completely in the first person. And then we're going to introduce a new game show to keep you up to date on the latest in uranium and plutonium. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. So the New York International Auto Show wrapped up on April 3rd, and also last week Elon Musk made his latest very, very important proclamation. So we've got autos editor Ezra Dyer and Alex George here to talk about the latest in autos. Hello. Good to be here. So I think first I just want to kind of hear the highlights. Give me the quick hits on the New York International Auto Show. Well, we, uh, we walked around the show for a couple days to the tune of uh, six miles a day, according to the, uh, the health app on my phone. And there were, there were not that many crazy concept cars. It was more like interesting production reveals, like the new hardtop Miata, which actually surprised everyone. Because, uh, you know, it's hard to surprise anyone at an auto show these days because everything gets unveiled or leaked in advance through some, you know, it'll be like a Russian dealer brochure or something that'll come out three weeks ahead and then everybody knows what's coming. And the Miata was actually a surprise. It's a, it's a hot-looking little car. Um, on, the, on the concept car side, the Navigator was the biggest thing, quite literally, with its giant gullwing single door on the side. And, um, you know, sometimes there are concept cars where you say, that looks pre-production ready, and I think they can actually build that. And this thing you look at and go, no, there's, there's no feasible way. That's <laughs> It was pure attention <laughs> grabbing. Be... Uh, we were walking yeah, around, that... and by, by the end of the day, it, they had actually pulled it off the showroom floor. And it like was this just... was just like a, a Lincoln Navigator SUV with just one big door on the side? Yeah. Uh, and on, So unlike, you know, front doors that open normally or whatever, and then the back door is going, the entire side panel of the car just opens going. <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, pick, picture a DeLorean with a staircase coming down out of the side. <laughs> and that's literally what it was uh the styling though is supposed to sort of give a preview of the next navigator for real and it looks kind of like a big range rover which is not a bad thing yeah and as usual with an auto show all the all the freaky cool stuff was down in the basement that's where you had the the wild little electric cars like uh nissan's tandem two-seater it's one of these cars that's supposed to be city-friendly and is probably abjectly terrifying to drive in the city. They had a few out and about in Manhattan, but we didn't get a chance to drive it out on the street. They only had them down in the, uh, down in the basement at the auto show. Uh, they also had the Elio, Elio Motors, another, um, another tandem city vehicle down there that had three wheels. It's front-wheel drive with torque vector in, electric. Uh, kind of an interesting, interesting concept for a scoot around town vehicle. And their their premise was, we're not trying to take over the motorcycle market. We're not trying to take over the commuter car market. We're just trying to get a little piece of a lot of different things and hopefully sell enough of these to make a business case. And they're kind of interesting, actually. I wrote around in this one, this other one that's exactly the same idea, Arkimoto. Um, it's three wheels, electric. Their concepts are to have them be delivery vehicles, which actually kind of makes sense because oh, you can just back them yeah. into little spaces. And they have these kind of motorcycle handlebar controls. You don't have to put your foot down like you do on a motorcycle when you're at a stoplight. And they have roll cages on the top, too. So the delivery guys can drive just as maniacally as they do now, but they've got a roll cage to protect themselves. They will feel 
more invincible. You know, the detail from that, from that Elio that I thought was cool, that I don't know how you would apply it to electric cars, but it had both regenerative braking and uh, normal, normal brakes, for lack of a better word. So unlike a Tesla or a Leaf or something where you back off the gas and you get regenerative braking, you know, the, uh, the one pedal driving, with this thing, you let off and you coast because, as they said, the most efficient way to get from point A to point B is to coast, as you would with a conventional car. So it had a brake lever that could engage regenerative braking and recharge the battery as you slow down. And then it also had a foot pedal, which could engage the, uh, the actual disc brakes. So you kind of get the best of all worlds. You get coasting and you get regen and you get you know actual uh, brakes when you need them. You know, whenever there's a, a hybrid or something that's trying to blend regen and uh, conventional brakes, like a Prius, you get this weird transition period where there's this kind of funky spot in the pedal where it switches over. And uh, Elio neatly gets around that. One other question, though. With all these cars on the showroom floors, is there theft? Well, yeah, if you walk around the auto show, you'll notice that everything that is not you know, literally bolted down is removed from the car. Because people like to take little souvenirs. So if you get into a car, that, especially one with a manual transmission, you'll find oftentimes that there's no shift knob in it. Because people love to get in and just unscrew the shift knob and take a little souvenir for themselves. And we were talking to someone at, uh, at one stand, I think it was Volvo, who's a, a veteran of the auto show circuit, who told us that one time someone marched off with an entire seat. They climbed into the car and unbolted the driver's seat and just walked out the front door what? with it. And I think it's, it's one of those things where it was so brazen that everybody probably just figured, well, yeah, he must be uh, with maintenance or something. <laughs> yeah. So what about Tesla? I, I don't follow cars closely, but I thought it was interesting that there was this huge auto show, and then the Tesla announcement is this uh, its own shebang modeled more after like an Apple product launch or something, it seems like. Oh, completely. It's like uh, the you know, Apple keynote with Steve Jobs on stage, except it's Elon Musk getting up there. This is the Model 3. So you've had the Model S, this really luxurious kind of 7 Series S-Class. Like super high-end. And it made electric cars sexy. And Ezra told me if I'm being hyperbolic about that and how what an effect it had on the perception of electric cars. And then this is the $35,000 consumer version of that same philosophy. Well, it's easy to make a cost-no-object car, or at least a uh, cost-can-be-$100,000 car which there's, there's your Model S, and a lot of people have, uh, a lot of people have bought Model S's, and they're, you know, they're more common than anyone expected them to be, I think. The Model 3 is supposed to be your real mainstream uh, car that actual people can afford, and they did have a lot of people wait in line, and they were taking $1,000 deposits, and uh, I think they got, they got at least 125,000 deposits oh, wow. once they once they started taking reservations. And those are refundable. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, if someone wants to back out because they don't have their car in two years, they still can. But it's a pretty serious statement of intent when you show up and put down $1,000 for a car that you haven't even driven yet, which prompts some people to be, uh, I guess, critical, critical of both the car and the people who would do that, that you're just the, uh, you know, slaves to the latest accessory rather than someone who actually cares about cars. Yeah, this has been likened to the iPhone lines. Yeah, it's definitely part of the genius of launching it that way, right? Is that you get people to buy in as first adopters. 
in a way that doesn't usually happen with, with vehicles. Well, I think so many people, so many people put down deposits. You can't really discount that. You know, it's it's hard to to write them off when they've got those kind of numbers. I mean, people people want that car and they're going to build it. And uh, at that point, uh, unless somebody else comes out with a car that is uh, not not been revealed yet, it's going to be them and the Chevy Bolt competing yeah. for that thirty thousand dollar, two hundred mile range kind of vehicle. Well, Chevy's there first. Yeah, no one expected that, and here we are. Is this thing just like kind of a scaled-back Model S, or is it a, a car that stands on its own? What did you think? So he answered a couple of questions over the weekend. He said things like the steering wheel setup is going to look like a spaceship. He said that it'll fit a, uh, a bike in the back seat. It'll be able to fit child seats. And the most important thing that I unfortunately seems to be lost on GM is that it looks cool. You know, it looks, it's a hot-looking little car. And, you know, no, the Bolt is uh, some impressive technology. And, and like I said, they're getting there first to the 200-mile range affordable electric car. But it looks, you know, it's a four-door hatchback. That's just, it's practical, yes. But uh, Tesla understands better than anybody that if you make it look sexy and exciting, then all the better. Yeah, at the, the Model 3, it looks like a kind of almost 1950s rendering of a futuristic car. The main thing that everyone's talking about is how there's no grill to it. That definitely kind of works. It should look as representative of the future as it actually is on the inside. And that's what they, that's what, you know, this kind of nailed. People want that when they buy an electric car. They want to make a declaration to everybody else on the road that that's what they're driving. They don't want it to blend in. They don't want to be anonymous. And that's why the Prius is you know, over a million sales. Maybe it's over two million by this point. I've kind of lost track. And the cars that just tried to look sort of normal, like Honda Civic hybrid, uh, you know, those those just never went very far. The BMW 7 Series hybrid, anyone remember that? You know? Nope. So the, the, the first guy in line who camped out for the longest, when is he getting his Model 3? 2017, supposedly. Supposedly. Right in the year. Yeah, they're leaving, yeah. they leave those dates open, they, and then pretty soon maybe we'll hear a quarter that they're supposed to have it, and then maybe they'll have a specific date that they'll actually arrive. Tesla leaves themselves a lot of wiggle room in their release dates, and they've been, they've been late on everything else, so there's, you know, there's no reason to think they'd be on time for this, except for the fact that they seem to have learned their lesson on making things overly complicated. You know, the Model 3 doesn't have Falcon doors. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have... The whole the interior only has one screen. There's really no dashboard. There's no traditional you know array of hard buttons and gauges. There's just a screen. So uh, I'm sure it will have its its issues with ramping up production on that scale. That's going to be more of the challenge is building that many cars. But building the car itself that shouldn't be a big deal. But I still you know if it came out a year or two late that wouldn't be out of character. All right, so you guys each give me your, like, two-sentence verdict. Is this, like, a signal moment in electric cars, like it's supposed to be? Uh, I hate to make pronouncements like that about something that's not going to be out for two years. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, okay, I'll put it this way. If it comes through as described now, then yes. Because, and it's less for the fact that this, this thing on its own is going to change, you know, the world, but it's going to force everybody else to really take Tesla seriously, and I think a lot of the major car companies still don't. I think that's completely true, and I think I've been more excited about Autopilot than about a lot of the other parts about this. Hopefully, when it comes out, it's got these autonomous features. 
that will actually seem more significant to me than the 200 mile range, that kind of stuff. Speaking of driving, how about a quick primer on the complicated but fascinating U.S. interstate numbering system? I mean, I find it fascinating. But anyways, you probably already know that even numbers run east-west and odds north-south. But did you know that the numbers count up going west to east and south to north? So Interstate 5 is in California, Interstate 95 on the east coast. Interstate 10 goes through LA and Jacksonville, and 90 goes from Seattle to Boston. In weird protruding states, there are even higher and lower numbers, like 96 in Michigan, 4 in Florida, and 2 in Texas. But I digress. The next thing to know, and this is actually pretty helpful if you like to drive without Siri ordering you around, is how three-digit interstates work. Three-digit interstates are actually called auxiliary routes because they branch off of a main two-digit interstate, and in fact, they might not go to other states. In California, for example, in the San Francisco Bay Area, 280, 580, 680, 780, 880, and 980 all branch off of Interstate 80. So when there's a three-digit number, the first digit is odd if it's what's called a spur route, meaning that it leaves the main road and never connects back again. So for example, I-170 in St. Louis leaves Interstate 70 to connect to another interstate in the city's western suburbs. On the other hand, if the first digit is even, the route eventually is going to come back to the main interstate. This either happens with the auxiliary route forming a full circle, like the I-495 Capitol Beltway in Washington, D.C., or as a bypass, like I-494 in Minneapolis-St. Paul, which skirts around the city, avoiding the downtown route taken by Interstate 94. So, do you get all that? Because that's pretty much it. Although, I do want to point out one more thing before you use this information at a party. Take care not to confuse the U.S. interstate system with the U.S. route system which actually predates the interstates and uses the exact opposite numbering scheme. So in US routes, Route 1 is on the East Coast, Route 101 on the West Coast, and Route 2 is like up in uh, Montana. When you're on the road, US routes have a black and white shield, and the interstates, a well-appointed red, white, and blue. All right, so this Friday, April 8th, there's a new movie coming out called Hardcore Henry. And uh, Cameron Johnson's here. He went to go see it recently. And Cameron, this movie was shot in a really interesting way. Yeah, it's actually it's it's being touted as the first first person point of view action movie ever made. So, meaning that you the whole movie is just you're seeing it through the eyes of the character. Yeah, you're. It's basically you are hardcore Henry. You are hardcore Henry. Did yeah. you feel hardcore? Uh, no, I felt mostly. Uh, kind of uh, nauseous but slightly bemused the whole time okay. it's a very graphic very violent movie so it wasn't nauseous from the first person perspective no. it was nauseous from like yeah, yeah, eyeballs yeah. exploding or something yeah yeah pretty much uh, a lot of a lot of pliers going into parts of the body where pliers don't belong <laughs> there's a lot of those yeah. uh so do you ever i mean is there like an actor playing the main character or do you ever see this guy no it's a it's a stunt man and he actually isn't even listed on the imdb page so it's just that's how not a person he is it's it's supposed to be just yeah like how you view the movie i'm pretty sure that's i mean that's actually kind of a cool idea but it's an interesting concept yeah okay so how did this work how'd they shoot this the film was mostly shot entirely on gopro hero threes which are the previous model because this started filming in 2014 right and to actually keep the cameras stable and on the uh stuntman slash actor's head they created this rig called an adventure mask Mm-hmm. and it strapped around the stuntman's head, and there was a spot where they could put either two cameras at about eye width, but around the nose area so that something I could still see and move. Right, that's, yeah, that's important. Because there's a lot of explosions, and he could have died if he couldn't see. Or they could switch it out with different kinds of cameras or just 
have one GoPro depending on what shot they needed. So the people that helped uh, director Ilya Neischuler create this adventure mask actually now sell the adventure mask on their website, adventuremask.com. To create it, they, they went through about 30 different iterations, testing the durability, seeing how it fit, and they actually also have a microphone on the top so that you can get sound. Yeah. I guess my question is, so if you buy one of these, like how different is it if you have two cameras right below your eyes as opposed to like holding the camera or having the rig on the handlebars of your bike? Like, do you think, do you think it really would feel different to see it from that perspective? I think it would because one, it would be at a human height perspective. I've actually worn the original GoPro strap, which sits at the top of the head on the forehead. Yeah. And it, it just looks wrong because it's a little bit higher than eye level, so it's a little bit off-putting. Yeah. And you don't actually get to see yeah. as much. Just because the human head, you don't bend down and point your forehead at everything you're looking at, but if your face is pointing where the cameras are on your cheeks, then it's going to capture everything that yeah. a normal person will see. Also, it'll stabilize. If you're holding a GoPro, oh, that's true. it's going to shake a lot. If you put it on your bike, it's definitely going to shake a lot. But if it's on your face, yeah. so it'll be about as stable as how you actually see it. Yeah. I also want to point out that since you're 6'5", you probably should have wrapped it around like your waist or something. Probably. And maybe that would have helped. What I think is interesting about this is that people are sort of, like we've all seen so much GoPro footage now. Mm-hmm. People are kind of used to the idea of seeing footage that's shot. I mean, because there's a very characteristic kind of motion to the way that uh-huh. footage moves when it's shot from a GoPro. To do that for two hours or an hour and a half, or whatever it is. Hour and a half, What's yeah. kind of the effect of watching it? It's interesting. Um, the way that they actually perfected the mask, it's, it's a stabilized mask, so mm-hmm. it's not shaky or anything. It doesn't look like amateur video. And so it actually does look pretty decently like a first-person point of view kind of shot. And you kind of get lost in it during the action scenes, but a lot of times when there's just someone on the screen staring and speaking right at you, yeah, it's a little bit off-putting. I don't want to say it's intrusive, but like it's weird when the movie comes out. It's not breaking the fourth wall, but it is breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. So I guess this probably just saves them money, though, to only have to hire a stuntman, not an actor. Probably. I think it was a pretty uh, shoestring budget. They actually had to go and raise $250,000 on Indiegogo for the uh, post-production because it was such an experimental film. They didn't really know how they were going to shoot the whole thing, so that cost a little bit more money than they expected, so they had to go and get the public to help. And they actually, they helped a lot. So did you like the movie? It was so violent and so graphic that at times I almost left. And I actually felt like one of those like 1950s moms who's yeah. picketing about Rebel Without a Cause. Like that's it, it almost moved me to do that, even though for no moral or philosophical reason, just it was just very, very graphic. But the story itself was pretty interesting. Yeah. And it has uh, Charlotte Copley from uh, District 9, who's an incredible actor, and he was, he was very enjoyable the whole time. Are there shots where, even knowing that it was a stunt memory and GoPro, it was like, how did they actually like, get that guy there? Or I never realized yeah. that would look like this does? Well, just, I mean, some of the extreme actual things that the stuntman was doing were incredible. And I feel like the most amazing part of this was actually the editing of the footage. Because mm-hmm. it seems... Aside from actual blackout scenes where he gets knocked unconscious and then wakes up later, it all seems like one continuous shot, pretty much. Yeah. So, kind of like Birdman, yeah. but a little First more extreme. First person with pliers. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was actually really incredible, and that's that's probably one of the things that stood out most to me. 
And in terms of other movies that I would like to see like this, I don't know if other than an action movie, this could really work as a feature film kind of thing. Yeah, because you probably want to see, you probably want to, like you said, it's sort of breaking the fourth wall, but it's not, but you kind of want to be impressed the whole time that they're getting a person to do these things. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know, but maybe they could just make like the sequel to Everest with this technique instead. Yeah. Something something doesn't have to be gruesome. It's Yeah, exactly. But something with a little bit more of an extreme visual. Yeah. Do you know if anybody's, like, is this guy going to make other movies like this? I'm not sure. The director, Ilya Neischuler, who's he's Russian, and his band, Biting Elbows, he directed uh, some of the music videos, and he did them in first-person GoPro Yeah. prior to this, and that's when he got the idea for this kind of movie. So he seems to really like shooting in this fashion, so possibly. And you got to imagine that people are only going to be more open to it. I mean, it kind of like... It's sort of weird that it took this long for somebody to... It really is. It is. It was only a matter of time until something like this happened. Okay. So I think I don't need to go see this movie because my skin's already crawling a little bit. But uh, the the next movie like this that's directed by somebody who's not in a band called... (laughs) What's it called? Biting Elbows. Yeah, that's not called Biting Elbows. I'll go see that one. Yeah. So today we're instituting a new game for How Your World Works that we call Who's Got Their Finger on the Button? And uh, it's about nuclear weapons. And our first contestant is Cameron Johnson. Hello. You really drew like the death and destruction card for this episode because you talked about Hardcore Henry and Wrench is going to bodies. And now should we all be afraid of nuclear winter? Yeah. And actually uh, doing research on this very subject kind of makes me fear for the humanity of the world. Uh, (laughs) It seems pretty grim. Yeah, what what depressed you more about humanity, Hardcore Henry or learning about who has nuclear weapons? I'd say definitely nuclear weapons because uh, some very scary people have them and just the amount of stockpile, it's kind of enough to end the world like 400 times over. So, you know, Hardcore Henry can ruin your evening, but nuclear weapons can really ruin the planet. Yeah. Um, Okay, so here's how this is going to work. We built a wooden spinner wheel like we're all familiar with from Wheel of Fortune or something like that. And so we're, you're going to spin this wheel, and then when it stops on a country, you have to explain if they have their finger on the button or not. Sounds like a fun game. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're excited. Are you ready to take the first spin? <laughs> yeah, here we go. All right, go ahead. Spin that wheel, Cameron. Okay. France. France uh, does have their finger on the button. They've actually got... About 300 nukes. Which 300? You'd think small country, also it's France, but yeah, they actually have uh, nuclear weapons. I was going to say, luckily they're docile, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Yeah, that's true. They might be on a little higher alert now. Okay, that was easy. Spin it again. India. India does. India has uh, about 120. They actually, it seems like they have the exact same amount of, as Pakistan, and I don't know if that's intentional because there's such a contentious relationship there, but... Uh, yeah, they've got a decent amount. Okay. Chili. <laughs> Chili does not does not have their finger on the button. That was actually a trick. It's pronounced Chile. Uh, oh, our old friends, the Russians. The Russians, if anybody's seen a movie between 1960 and now, know that they actually have their finger on the button. They've got about 7,700 active nukes, which is the most in the world, more than the U.S. They have more than us? Yeah. Uh, oh, USA. The U.S. does have their finger on the button. So Russia has more than us. Do they have a lot more than us? Uh, about 600. The U.S. has around 7,100. And are we? Do we still make more 
How we does that work? we uh, we actually we uh, in the next ten to fifteen years we're gonna make more actual warheads and rockets, but we actually have enough nuclear material that we don't have to manufacture any more weaponized nuclear material. That's interesting. It sounds like a loophole. Yeah, it kind of is. We have a lot of stockpiles from retired actual nuclear weapons that we didn't get rid of the actual nuclear material. Okay, I see. It's a recycling. We're actually being very. Being very uh, conscious of the environment, we're recycling nuclear weapons. I don't think it works like that. Uh, Oh, here's somebody I'm actually afraid of. North Korea. North Korea has a couple. We don't know how powerful they are or how far they can throw them, but uh, they've got about eight nukes. Didn't they recently, like, lie about one? Yeah, they said that it was a thermonuclear bomb, but what we actually think it was was a boosted nuclear weapon which has a higher explosion, but is not as big as a hydrogen bomb that you classically think of, like the one that was dropped on Bikini Atoll. Okay, so thermonuclear would have been worse if they actually had that. Much worse, yeah. Yeah, that's not the last thing they've lied about, too. No, no, and probably not the last thing they will lie about. Canada. <laughs> I know, I was just Next. <laughs> uh, Israel. Israel does. Um, Israel has about 80. I... Don't know if they make them themselves or if they got them from us, but they've got a couple. Okay. China. Yeah, China's China's got about 260 of them. So they are weaponized. And you would think with that, they could keep North Korea more in check. Because don't we sort of hope one day they'll they'll choose to put some pressure on North Korea? Yeah, but they don't really want to because if North Korea falls, then South Korea will take over and they're an ally with the U.S. and they don't want to have... Uh, a U.S. ally that has actual direct border territory with them, which is why they kind of stick with North Korea. Iran. Iran does not. And mostly thanks to us, uh, they were trying to make nuclear material that would be that could be weaponized. But uh, since the agreement, they have decided that they don't want to do that because they'd like to be able to buy things and export things and import things. Kamchatka. <laughs> I don't think that's a country. That was intended as a trick question. I got it off the risk board. <laughs> and that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief Brian D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes and while you're there, go ahead and leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And at the same time, don't forget to check out our other show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about Hardcore Henry, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening. Yeah.